0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I am thrilled to be here today with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who is a United States Senator for the state of New York. She was first elected to Congress in 2006, where she served as the representative to the 20th Congressional District of New York. She joined the U.S. Senate in January 2009 at age 42, when she was the mother of a young son. She was initially appointed to the Senate by Governor David Patterson when Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State, Leaving the seat unfilled, Senator Gillibrand then ran a special election in 2010 and won. She was re-elected to a six-year term in 2012 with 72% of the vote and is currently running for re-election. She is the author of Off the Sidelines, Speak Up, Be Fearless, and Change Your World, with the Forward* by Hillary Clinton. She also just wrote a children's book, which is coming out November 13th, called Bold and Brave, Ten Heroes Who Won Women the Right to Vote. A magna cum laude graduate of Dartmouth, she currently lives in upstate New York in Washington, D.C. with her husbands and two sons, ages 13 and 9. Did I get that right? 10 and 14. 10 and 14. They keep getting older. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for coming on, Monson. Have time to read books. This is such a treat. I'm
2: delighted. Thank you for inviting me. Of course.
0: (laughs) So why did you decide to write a children's book? Why this topic and why now?
2: Well, I was asked by a friend of mine who works at the publisher, and I was so excited to be asked because I love the topic of the women who really ran the suffrage movement and what they accomplished and how they accomplished things. And I really felt like it was important to write this book at this time. I really wanted to capture what people were feeling after the election and the fact that we elected Trump, which has not represented our values as mothers, as daughters, as sisters. and has really undermined women's rights. But I wanted to talk about that women have overcome moments like this. And so talking about each of these women and what they accomplished was something I was really excited to do. How did you pick this selection of women? I read a ton of biographies about the suffragists and what they accomplished. And I picked 10 women who I felt really did something unique and, and did something particularly brave at the time or particularly bold at the time. And I wanted to represent uh, how widespread the women's suffrage movement was and that there were women trying to accomplish this fundamental right for women, the right to vote all across America, across two generations.
0: If there was a children's book being written you know, 50 years from now, who do you think in our generation might be profiled as, aside from you, as a crusader for women's rights?
2: Well, I think we've had a lot of extraordinary advocacy in the last year or two years across the board on all issues. I think there's a lot of really effective writers right now. Rebecca Traister, feminist author, writes for New York Magazine and just published a book called Good Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. I also think activist Amina So has been very provocative and aggressive in coming up with new narratives about what women's rights actually mean and really profound statements. I think Brittany Packnett's doing the exact same thing and has just changed the, the nature of the debate about why women's empowerment and intersectionality, particularly between sexism and racism, is so important to not only address, but to talk about. I also think some of the younger generation is doing pretty amazing things. The fact that you've got young women like Emma Gonzalez trying to talk about why she believes it's our right to have safe tools and to end gun violence. There's a lot of women who are working in making is safe for sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault. And those young women are doing amazing things. So I, I just think there's a, there's a whole generation of women out there who are trying to change things and great authors who are writing about it.
0: And you actually wrote in your book, Off the Sidelines, in the, the beginning, you wrote something that I thought was really great. You said, so here's my blunt truth. I'm angry and I'm depressed and I'm scared that the women's movement is dead or at least on life support. Women talk a lot these days about shattering the glass ceiling, but we also need to focus on cleaning the so-called sticky floor, making sure all women have a chance
2: to rise. Mm, That's exactly how I felt when I wrote that. (laughs) Do you still Um, feel this way? No, I feel like since Trump's been elected, I think the women's movement has changed. I think it's been reborn. I think it's been just energized and people are really doing different things. I mean, I, I look at sort of the more traditional activists have been working in the trenches for a really long time, groups like Planned Parenthood and NARAL, Elise Hogue. I mean, they've been fighting these battles for a long time, for a decade, I'd say. And those women are now bringing a whole new generation of women along with them. And so I think what we're seeing is this emergence of almost a new conversation that's amplifying everything that's been done before, but ones that... I think, are just building on the hard work of what's happened, you know, in the generations before us. And that that passing of the baton, I think, has been really, really powerful. Which is why, you know, people like Cecile Richards have carried that baton for a long time and now they're passing it to the next generation of people to continue the work. I think it's meaningful. You know, I grew up thinking about, you know, Hillary Clinton and all she accomplished and looking at people. Who had been in the civil rights movement and then in the women's rights movements of the 70s and 80s. And those women are people that inspired me to do the work I'm doing. And yeah, so I me. just feel like each one of us, you know, I always admired Gloria Steinem and thought the battles that she accomplished were extraordinary. I loved reading her book, her most recent book, about what that was like. But that's what sort of we stand on the shoulders mm-hmm. of all those who have, have been working for the last decade, two decades, three decades. And tell me about your own personal
0: family history, because I know you were really influenced by your family. You had wrote in the children's book, Bold and Brave, that your great-grandmother, Mimi, which is what my kids call my mom. I would have to say that, or she would kill me if I didn't mention that right now. She told you all about how she had worked in the factory when all the men went off to world fight in the war, and how your grandmother, Polly, founded the Democratic Women's Club in Albany and worked very closely with Mayor Corning, and I liked how you described their relationship and whatever it may be in the book. I don't know, I thought that was, Mm -hmm. you left a lot of (laughs) question marks, which was um, entertaining. Anyway, um, and how she would roller skate in the New York State Capitol where she worked, and that they both taught you to fight what you believe in. Your mom was a black belt in karate, which Mm -hmm. is sort of terrifying to have a mom like that. How did their actions shape you and your career, do you think?
2: Well, I grew up with extraordinary role models. My Mom was one of the you know few women in her law school class but as one of the women who had a career outside the home she was a role model for a lot of us in my generation and five out of six of my best girlfriends growing up all went to law school because that's what my mom did and she did things differently she taught me to be bold and to dare to be different she was secretary black belt in karate she practiced law she did a lot of things that women in her generation didn't often do which inspired me to not worry about being just like everybody else, that I could charter my own path. My grandmother was interested in politics. The fact that she loved politics and worked on the grassroots level throughout her life, I found very inspiring. She took me to my first campaign headquarters, watching a bunch of ladies work on a campaign and stuff envelopes to tell voters that they needed to vote and who their candidate was inspired me. I love the fact that she had strong opinions about what to do with your time and how to help people who needed your help she cared deeply about her church and her faith and and worked with her church to help the most at risk and most at need people so they really gave me these core values that we should care about one another and that what you do with your time does matter and that women's voices matter and that making sure women are organized and participating is fundamentally important so both my mom and my grandmother were those strong role models for me and so you
0: Wrote this amazing memoir. I don't remember what year it was published. I didn't write it down. Anyway, you wrote something that I thought was really fantastic in Chapter 2. If you're like me, you're reading this book because you want to find out how to get where you want to be in your own life by learning how someone else got where they wanted to be in theirs. 2014. Thank you. In 2014. Sorry. I thought I did all my research. but no um, I keep stacks of books next to my nightstand buying about female leaders. And always I have one question. How would she do it? Too often, I don't find useful answers, and I close the book annoyed. I wish I could offer you the perfect parable on how to get from A to B, but I can't. So this is my idiosyncratic story of growing up and building the life I wanted, along with a few lessons I hope someone can use. I mean, you're so relatable and likable. Mm-hmm. It's like reading this book. It's like chatting with a friend, and yet here you are, this powerful story. Well, simulator. that's what I
2: wanted to create. The book I'm reading right now is Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage. And I love the book so much because she just literally opens her life to you to understand What does intersectionality mean in her life? And and how has she handled racism? How has she handled institutional racism? How has she handled sexism? How has she dealt with it in her own community? And how she navigates life? And I so appreciate that she took the time to write the book Mm -hmm. because it allows me to live a small slice of her life. You know What was it like in high school? She went to a predominantly white high school. How did her friends treat her? How did that make her feel? And so I could have a window into her life, which allows me to be a better legislator. It allows me to be a better leader and to understand what other people's lives are like. And that's what I tried to do in my book. I just wanted to tell a young woman, or a woman of any age, you know, some of the challenges that I faced and how I dealt with them Some I won, some I lost, but how do you deal with adversity? How do you manage your life as a mom and as a person who works full time outside the home? And how do those two things fit together? How do you be a good senator? How do you be a good parent? It's hard. Although my life is much easier than a lot of people who work 10, 15, 20 hours a day because I have a lot more flexibility. And so I talk about that too, that, you know, I have the benefit of a husband who has a flexible schedule and I have the benefit of running my own office so I can set my hours if I need to uh, on a given day. So it's just I think biographies in general are so helpful because you just want to learn how someone else figured it out. And that's why I wrote the Bold and Brave book for young children. I wanted young kids to see these are women who sacrificed everything to do what was right, to do what was needed, to do what was important at the time. And because of those sacrifices and because of their bravery, we now have a voice in politics. We can not only vote, but we can run for office and we can run for, you know, Senate, we can run for president, we can run for anything and, and have a say in our community's lives and that that's important and because of these women's sacrifices now, Every young girl who reads this book will know, I can be anything when I grow up, and I can change anything when I grow up, and I can make the world better. So inspiring. I feel like I need to leave here and start taking over the world or
0: something. I'm like, so empowered. So, by the way, this book is so beautifully illustrated. How did you end up teaming up with um, Myra
2: Kalman for this? So, it was a little bit of serendipity and good karma. We had an event at the Brooklyn Museum, and the woman who's the director there, Ann Pasternak, we were just talking about this children's book I was about to do. And she said, well, you know, I know a lot of children's book illustrators. I said, you do? I said, we haven't chosen ours yet. And she said, yes. She said, my best friend's Myra Coleman. And I nearly fell over because (laughs) Myra Coleman is the illustrator I wanted, but I didn't think she'd be available because she's considered a fine artist and wouldn't necessarily do this children's book. And because of Anne, she introduced us and Myra signed on within a week and it was so exciting. And so as you can see, as you look through the illustrations, they make the book. I mean, they bring these characters to life. And as these young women who did extraordinarily hard things, so amazingly well, and her illustrations, I think is what allow a child to not only see themselves in these stories but imagine themselves as doing these great things too. I like how you included details of, of this person used to wear this type of thing. Yeah, Susan B. Anthony loves exactly, her red yeah, shawl. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, because well, I that was uh, something that Myra put into the book. She said, Listen, she said you need small facts that kids can relate to about each person. Like, think of one thing that could be interesting. So that's why I include the story of my grandmother who liked to roller skate on the marble floors in the State Capitol when she was a secretary as a 20-something-year-old, because that was a story my mom told me that I thought was really interesting and funny, and so that was the picture that Myra decided to paint about my grandmother. That's great. Well, it's perfect timing for
0: this book. Can't wait to have all my kids. <laughs> I only read to one so far. But. In addition to the book, Off the Sidelines, you have a whole organization, Off the Sidelines, where and the website where you list all sorts of ways for women to get involved, not just women, but young girls, from every age, whatever, in whatever way you can be politically active or just helping other people and, you know, focusing on just accomplishing great things for the community. And you even had a podcast for a while called Off the Sidelines. I saw you had like six or seven
2: episodes. What happened to that? So we, we, I think we're going to renew it. Uh, What it began to be for me was a book club. And I was, always reading books with the young women that I work with and they would pick a book that was all the rage and we'd all read it and talk about it. And I thought we should just do this for off the sidelines and we should pick books by female authors and talk to the author about their book and why they wrote it. And I really loved it. So I think we will renew our podcast idea because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I like podcasts. So it's a great way to get uh, create a conversation about why, Women's voices matter and why being engaged in our elections matter. So I may
0: I may renew it. Excellent. <laughs> you have made tackling economic issues facing young families a key focus of your legislative agenda. You fought for universal pre-K, affordable, high-quality daycare, equal pay for equal work, and national paid family and medical leave. Can you just tell me a little more in general about your passion for improving the lives of young families in this way? And also just how does it feel like give me an example maybe of when you've accomplished when you found out that one of the things you were working so hard on accomplishing and getting past like the 911 health health bill and everything
2: what does that feel like to you and how does i mean it's so well a lot of my job is advocacy and i talk to my constituents i travel around my state a lot and i go to all 62 counties but the stories that I heard from those first responders were so crushing. How they were losing everything they loved because they did the right thing. They came to ground zero day after day, week after week, month after month. And unfortunately are now quite ill. A lot of first responders are have cancers and they desperately need healthcare. And so I was propelled into that uh, advocacy because their stories were just so gripping and so urgent. And I wanted to make sure every one of my colleagues in the Senate understood What was at stake that these are men and women who raced up towers when everybody else was coming down that the hard work afterwards and were exposed to horrible toxins when the towers fell and so when you can actually accomplish something for them, I just know that I'm doing my job well that that's what my jobs about helping people making a difference in people's lives and protecting them and defending them and speaking for them. And even when I'm not successful, I still know I'm doing the right thing if I'm carrying someone's story with me, if I'm telling someone's biggest hurdle, worry, impediment, challenge, and trying to change it or fix it or make it better. And so a lot of times I hear from women, and that's why I often work on issues that affect families' lives, overwhelming. Because a lot of women we focus on, are my children happy, healthy? Is the school they're going to good? Do they have access to clean air and clean water? You know, my young son has asthma. What do I do about that? How can I change that? So there are real worries. I mean, I only got involved in trying to solve the marijuana crisis to, actually get America, medical marijuana in my state, in, in this country, decriminalize marijuana because I heard stories. You know, hearing from a mom whose child has Gervais syndrome, who has a hundred seizures a day, knowing that...
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: Any one grand mal seizure could end their life and knowing that she has to go to a state that has legal marijuana to buy it and then brings it home and has to test it to make sure it's the right amount that's absurd it should be a medicine that's available to everyone and then hearing from mothers about sons who are arrested uh, because they have a small amount of marijuana in their pocket the fact that black or brown people in this city of New York City are 10 times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession even though the usage rate is the same regardless of your race that really breaks my heart. And so it's how I get involved in a lot of issues. But simple things like having national paid leave, we're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have paid leave. And it hurts workers and it hurts our economy and it particularly overwhelms caregivers who are often women. Not being able to be with a newborn, not being able to be with a parent when they're dying, not being able to be with a sick child or a sick spouse. Those are real life things that happen every day to everybody. And so not having paid leave means that For a lot of women they have to make that tough choice between doing their job providing for their family or being with their loved one when they are needed and if you have to make that choice for a lot of women they just quit their jobs and if you don't have vacation days or sick days it's sometimes your only option and then you know every time they ramp on they ramp on back with less seniority less pay and that's the sticky floor um, that they cannot get off the sticky floor they cannot get out of those low-wage jobs and it's why two thirds of minimum wage earners are women. So I do a lot on the economic things like national paid leave, equal pay for equal work, affordable daycare, universal pre-K, higher minimum wage would all overwhelmingly help women in the workplace and the U.S. economy because seven out of 10 moms are working and four to 10 moms are primary or sole wage earners in their families. As a mom of four kids, I feel like I should give you a hug right now. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: would like that. Like thank you so much. I no, love really hugs. I mean what you're doing is so it's just like having a team captain out there sort of fighting for all of us and it's just so amazing. I love how in the book also you talked about your squash coach mm. and how she had made you in college play at the number 2 rank even though
2: you were number I 4. <laughs> <You're not ready. laughs> I was not ready for that. You're never I was not ready for that. No, learned that you learned that but the, she point, made me, the she, point wasn't yeah. to win necessarily no, but to put it was yourself to push up. myself and to not not be afraid to lose and to play my absolute best, even if I was going to be crushed, and it really did help. I'm not afraid to lose, and I'm not afraid to take on tough challenges that might take years to accomplish. That's why these stories about the suffragists is so important. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton never got to see the right to vote, uh, neither did Harriet Tubman or Sojourner Truth, but they worked on it their whole lives to make a difference, and so it took the next generation to carry the baton just to cross that finish line in their own ways of shaking things up. That's why. I loved your first question about who are the suffragists of today, who are those great civil rights leaders of today. And for a lot of these younger women coming up, they're doing extraordinary things. And they're doing and saying things that would not have been said in the last generation, would not have been done in the last generation. So I do think it's true that each one of us builds on the legacy of the, those who come before us. And it matters immensely. So. I want to ask
0: some more questions about being a mom and a senator. Mm-hmm. I understand you have a more flexible schedule, you can control your hours more, but how does it work? Yeah. Are you the kind of mom who's like, are you able to go to all the soccer games? Do you want to do that stuff? Do you, How, like, how do you balance it all? Like, do you, are you doing homework with the kids at night? Yeah. Are yes, you, yes, yes, yes. I, like, so, I want like a visual so I'll slice give you, yeah, of yeah. the... I'll
2: give you the slice of life. So as a mom and a public servant, mm-hmm. I decided very early on that my focus was going to be how to do both well and building my work life around the needs of my family. And so my day job is different than most other senators. You know, I go to different things. I schedule myself differently but it's because I have young kids and I really want to be present. So in the morning, I will make dinner, I, excuse me, in the morning, I'll make breakfast for uh, Henry and Theo. I will get them ready for school. I will bring them to school. I would then go to work. And so I might not get to work till nine o'clock, which you know, a lot of my colleagues will get to work at eight o'clock or seven o'clock because they like to have those morning things. I don't take morning meetings very often. If I need to, I will make sure Jonathan's in charge and he will you know do the children's. Routine for them with them. And then I'll go to work and go to hearings, you know, meet with constituents, do all the work of a senator, vote. And then I try to leave in time to pick the kids up from school. And so I would typically leave by 5 o'clock, pick up the kids from school, bring them home, make them dinner. And then if I had evening votes or evening meetings, I would leave after that. And when they were little, you know, it was really important books in bed because that's the time you really want to be home. And so I had this one circumstance when I first got elected or first appointed to the Senate. I was nursing Henry because Henry was only six months when I was first appointed. And the floor staff of the U.S. Senate said, well, you need to sit in the chair and preside over the Senate between 5 and 7. And I couldn't do 5 to 7 because that's when I was nursing. I was only nursing twice a day at that point because he was six months, so I nursed in the morning before work, and then I would nurse at 5 o'clock. And I couldn't explain to these 20-something-year-old male staffers that— I need to breastfeed between five and seven. There's no chance that I'm not going to breastfeed because not only is it physically very difficult not to breastfeed on your schedule, but I needed to be with Henry at that moment. And so I said, I just need a different time. I'll do two hours, but can I have two hours during the day or two hours later at night? And they were persistent, just said, no, you have to take the time you're given. So I had to take it into my own hands and I just called all my, other junior senators who had to preside as well and traded times with them and so uh, mark udall was really the knight in shining armor at that moment because he said of course kirsten you know take my 9 a.m time i said great (laughs) and so i got to open the senate at 9 30 which i really loved and uh, it was all because a male colleague really was kind and thoughtful and said of course i'll change with you Mm -hmm. the other challenges i've had in my this particular job and balancing is When the boys were younger, they were in daycare before school and daycare pickup was between five and six and you really had and school actually pickups between five and six. But when they were little, it was harder because I had to vote during that time. And so I would pick them up. And, you know, when Theo was little, he'd come with me to the house chamber for I had Henry. And he was, you know, five. And so he'd like to vote for all the House members. And in the House, you vote by sticking your ID card into a voting machine where you push yay, nay, or present. And so Theo would ask all the other Congress members, can I, can I do your vote? And so he'd push red or green, and he had a blast. And they used to have this room in the back where you could get hot dogs and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and yogurt and ice cream and... So there was many evenings when Theo would have dinner with me between 5 and 6 because they just happened to call votes between 5 and 6 often that year. It was just all the time. <laughs> so Theo came with me to, to vote for that hour because so I had to give him to daycare. Over time in the Senate, votes weren't as often, but when I had little Henry, I'd have to pick him up for daycare and he couldn't be left alone, because he's a little kid, like you can't leave a baby or a toddler you know, alone, unattended, and you can't bring children onto the Senate floor, whereas the House floor, you could bring children onto the floor. And so I would have to sometimes just have Henry in my arms or when he was a toddler in my hand, and I'd have to lean into the door of the Senate to vote from the (laughs) chamber door, because I couldn't let go of his hand. As he got older, I used to leave him in in Harry Reid's office, which was when he was the minority leader and the majority leader. It's right off the Senate floor. It's now Chuck's office. So I'd ask Theo or Henry or both, just sit right here while mommy runs into votes. The good news is we now have more senators who have newborns and one of the things that Tammy Duckworth did was make sure she could bring an infant on the Senate floor. Now the, the permission is only good while they're an infant, which is ridiculous, but it's progress. It's better than I me mean, not being able to bring Henry on the floor when I needed to. So Tammy's accomplished that for the next mom that decides to be a <laughs> senator. And you, you worked up until like the day? I did. I was in a House hearing and it was the armed services hearing where you mark up the yearly armed services authorization bill and it's usually like a nine to midnight thing and so I said to the chairman I will sit till 9 p.m. because I know by 9 p.m. I'll be just dead and so I sat there all day and I was so uncomfortable and I was having all these pains and I was just plowing through it and I finally just left at nine. And I went home, and I went to bed, and sure enough, my water broke that night. So it was definitely some early labor pains. <laughs> I read somewhere they gave you a standing ovation. So I brought Henry back to the floor a few weeks later. Since I had C-section, I waited till I felt comfortable. you know. And so a few weeks later, I had a vote that I wanted to vote on, and so I brought Henry back and... Speaker Pelosi gave me one minute to introduce Henry to the Aww. to the House members, and it was very exciting. So I brought little Henry. I was a little worried he was going to, you know, spit all over me, but he didn't. He was very well behaved. He slept through the whole thing.
0: They should. You should try to push that through as a as a law that all you know places of work should give. A woman, a standing ovation when she comes right. back of after course. having a baby. Yeah. I think that would be your well. Place. They hadn't seen Next it. Next on your
2: agenda, please. It's I was a- only <laughs> the fifth member of Congress ever to have a baby while in office, so it just they hadn't seen one. They hadn't seen a young mom and a baby in a, in a while, so they thought it was worth clapping for. I agree. I- Hopefully, in this new election, uh, when we flip the house, uh, we're electing a lot more young women to the house and even the senate. We have Kirsten Cinema running for the senate; as a young woman. So we have a lot of opportunity, which I'm very excited about I'm Are more young women
0: this election. Are you? I mean, it's I'm so very soon, hopeful.
2: It's like- I'm very hopeful. I've been traveling not only around my state talking to folks, but the number of people who are turning out at town halls, you know, to protest, coming to Washington, to do the women's marches, coming to Washington to, to protest, Judge Kavanaugh. You just saw thousands and thousands of women who are on fire because they are so concerned about the future of this country, particularly under President Trump. But you're also seeing women willing to run for office. And so you have more women running now than ever before in the history of ever. You have new advocacy organizations. One young woman created a, a group called Run for Something, and they have seen unbelievable participation, thousands of of people participating, wanting to run campaigns, uh, run for office, an exponential increase. And she created that out of nothing when she saw what happened in the election. She just wasn't going to sit and do nothing. She decided, I'm going to fight back. And that's what she accomplished. So you're seeing it across the board with what Amanda Lippmann did, but also you see it in the number of women running for office. Groups like Higher Heights double the number of African-American women running for Congress. Traditional groups like EMILY's List, exponential increases. They would be working with 1,000 candidates at this point in the cycle. They're working with over 40,000 candidates right now. Yeah. And you have over 200 women running alone for Congress right now who are running as nominees of their party. So you're just going to see a different players list. And that transformation is going to help the country because we'll focus on issues that maybe haven't been top 10 issues like paid leave or universal pre-K or affordable daycare. Some things that really would help the economy grow and help all families. I think the lens that they will bring to their job will be different and that will be good for outcomes. I feel like there's this maybe a
0: misconception that you lose your sense of privacy once you lose for any sort of public office. And that, you know, as a woman, if you were to run, would you be able to protect the privacy of your kids or your family or, you know, I feel like that the more in the public eye you get, the more sort of vulnerable you become. Do you Have you found that to be an issue at all?
2: No, I don't, I don't feel more vulnerable. I think that for a lot of women, they might not have run for office because they don't like the negativity of campaigns. Mm-hmm. They don't like the, the constant bickering and just the whole job of being an elected leader seems so adversarial. And right. most women like to do things by consensus. They like to bring people together. And so I think they've traditionally avoided running for office for those reasons. But I think because the nature of this moment is so intense and so frightening and that the country is going in exactly the wrong direction on so many issues. I mean, this president just continues to divide the country, wants to build a wall, wants to you know, keep out Muslims, wants to find moral equivalencies where there are none in Charlottesville, won't stand up to white supremacists, doesn't um, do the right thing in terms of our transgender troops, and wants to not allow them to serve. I mean, he just keeps dividing this country on every line. I think that's particularly offensive to a lot of women and disturbing. And so they're willing to run. They're willing to be the one that will run, overturn, you know, who controls the House of Representatives, control, you know, overturn who controls the Senate and their local school boards and their local elections. And so they're running across the board. And I've been to, you know, a dozen states and seen incredible local candidates running and trying to help them be successful. It was one of the reasons why I founded Off the Sidelines six years ago because I just wanted to ask more women to participate, to create that call to action to say, I need you to vote. I need you to run. I need you to support other women who are willing to run. And through our Off the Sidelines efforts, we've raised over $7 million for women candidates.
0: That's amazing. And there have been whispers that you've denied that you are thinking of
2: running for president in 2020? Well, I'm just focused on Senate. That's something I could think about later. But I really believe that everyone should be focused on this election right now, because if we're not, we're going to miss the opportunity to really hold President Trump accountable and actually create a bulk word against the worst things he wants to do. And just a personal question just to end. So
0: you have all this stuff going on in your life and with your kids and your family. Do you get any time for yourself? Do you get to like work out
1: and get yes. your hair
0: like do you do you get to do any of
2: those basic yes, women I, things that yes, like
0: like yes. other women like how does a senator so, how does a woman so I do have my content? mommy
2: time which I've decided long ago was really important to sanity and so I like to work out I have a group of ladies that I work out with I have a a little text group called exercise ladies and they're my best friends and, and I get to work out with them most mornings. So wow. we all sign up for different classes, but I do Pilates and I do biking classes. I like biking classes. I found a new group of people to play tennis with. So I play tennis once in a while, maybe once a week. Last like I play squash. I need to find some more squash partners soon, but I, I stay fit. And so I do an hour each morning, usually at 6am though, because I, you know, that's when my family's still sleeping. So I just, leave my house at like 5.45 and go to a class, come back at seven and then I make breakfast for everybody. Yeah. So I do that and then I try to find time with my husband. We try to get away once in a while, at least for a night or two, You know, every few months we'll find time. But I do try to keep that time protected on Saturdays. I almost always for the last several years is reserved just for the boys. And we just, I, on Saturdays, I like to go watch their soccer games, watch their baseball games and maybe see a girlfriend for breakfast or something after our Pilates class. So that's what we do. My girlfriends are important to me and I've got girlfriends all over my state, some great girlfriends in New York City, great girlfriends in upstate New York and Albany, and then girlfriends in DC. So those groups of women keep me sane. And then I also spend time in my faith. That's another thing that I use to keep me centered. In Washington, I do Bible studies a couple times a week with women and men who are senators, mostly Republicans. And then I try to go to church on Sundays. And that keeps me sane as well. So. Wow.
0: Well, sounds like you've gotten this whole thing figured out. Not really. <laughs> I make it up as I go along.
2: And every year I make different you know, refinements on what is necessary to keep me whole this year. Because <laughs> life changes, and your kids yeah. change, and they get older, and you've got to meet their needs in a different way. So. I think every era of being a parent uh, is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I now have a teenager, he was 14 in high school, it's very different. Uh, Henry's 10 and you know, he's in fifth grade, so he's just entering middle school with all those challenges. And so my kids need different things from me. So I try to really meet them where they are and be the best mom I can be. Uh-huh. Well, thank you so much for
0: coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This has yeah. been so interesting for me and I'm so inspired by you. and. Thankful for all the things that you do for, for women, not just women, but women and men everywhere. It's, it's really fantastic. I Thank think. you for everything. Thank you. Appreciate it, of course. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio, editing, and mixing. Thanks for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.